The Art Of is a podcast with the sole intent of meeting with artists that work in a variety of mediums. I'm your host, Alex Donovan. Come join us as we dig deep into how different artists work and run their creative endeavors. Welcome to The Art Of. Our guest today is Daniel Matthew York, musician, composer, painter, entrepreneur, business owner of multiple ventures, and all-around great guy. He has a business acumen that is incredible, a knack for knowing his audience, and is incredibly generous in sharing this with others. Taking the time out of his busy schedule is much appreciated, and we are glad to have him here today. Dan, thank you, and welcome to the show. Yo, Alex, good to be here. Yeah. So uh, we've known each other for going on 15 years now. Yeah, it's something like, I mean, we were both in Chicago at the time, so it's got to be pushing it. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And then I knew you as a musician mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago, and you're also a fine art painter as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was in, when you and I met, I was in a band called Space Station where I, I fronted that band, and I was probably, I don't know, 28 or something like that. But yeah. Yeah, I've been painting my whole life, and I picked up music. Uh, my mom used to make mm-hmm. me take piano lessons when I was a kid, and that all just, you know, you hated doing that. But, um, <laughs> you know, it worked out all right for me in terms of playing in rock bands. I started off as a keyboardist in a band when I was 14, and that evolved into bass and singing and all sorts of other stuff. I didn't know that. You were a keyboardist too, huh? Yeah, I started off as a keyboardist. I was a huge Faith No More fan. And so, uh, of course, you know, you had Roddy Bottom on the keyboards, and, and that was kind of how I started playing keyboards. I was in a band called White-Eyed Blind that was fronted by uh, a real talented guy named Mike Murphy. He's one of the most uh-huh. brilliant lyricists I've ever met, and we had a guitarist named Ken Pollard. And uh-huh. I was in that band for... Uh, God, 12 years. We got up to the point where we were getting produced by some guys named Sean McMahon, who won a few Grammys from Slipknot and mm-hmm. Marilyn Manson's Hollywood album. And then I worked with uh, a guy who was producer of Skillet and Hangnail, if you've ever heard of those guys. They were kind of like punk yeah. rock. And yeah. So we, you know, we got up to that level. And then we all started getting married and having kids. And, and life changed, man. So then how did painting come into your art career? So you started out as a musician and then you evolved into doing fine artwork. Well, it's funny because it wasn't like that. I was always uh, an artist at like six, seven years old. I was like, wow, I can really draw. And, and, And I was always like the best artist in my school. And in high school, it was the same. So it was more of an artist who then turned into a musician. And really the only reason I went into music, I was like, wow, you can get a lot of girls as a musician, man. <laughs> so it's like, this is, this is a good route. But I mean, really my thing was always painting and drawing. I mean, I was always, that was always what I did. And, and uh, the, the, like I said, the music thing kind of came naturally just as a creative type, you know, you can move from one genre to another, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it was, it was, and then I really got into songwriting, but you know, as you get older, um, I really more appreciate painting more than music i feel there's a lot of there's a lot of freedom in both of those uh areas but i feel that painting there's a certain freedom that i like about that that you just don't get that you just don't get with music well what's the freedom that you find in painting um you like for example with music you know there's a whole creative process i find the creative processes in in both areas similar Uh and you know there's 
there's a whole process that you run through when you're composing a song and when you're coming up with a riff and you're you know trying to create hooks and all this and and then there's a whole process when you have a concept that you want to see um, on on a canvas. But I just find that there is a simplicity to my personal time when it comes to painting. So not that there's not hard work behind both, because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is if you don't know how to work hard in either of those places, you're not going to get anywhere. But right. I do find that there's a bit more freedom to my life in my time with with painting, you know, like and with music. I mean, you're you know, when you're younger, you're playing a lot of gigs and you're humping around musical equipment. Right. And, and it's cool when, when you're younger, but you know, when you start having kids and you're married and shit, you're like, this sucks. <laughs> and you're like, this really sucks. And then you're doing band practice, you know, at some points, three and four times a week to prepare for gigs. And, and it was just, it's just in terms of a lifestyle, it doesn't give me the level of freedom that I want. And with painting, uh, like this morning is a perfect example. Before you called, I was talking to my mom on the phone, busting out some layers of two paintings that I'm working on in, <laughs> nice. my, in my robe and my in my uh, slippers. You know, my <laughs> my whole COVID nineteen gear. <laughs> I, I I understand that with the schlepping around. I was in bands for years. My yeah. parents were in bands. They had a tour bus. They would move from place to place to place. And me as a young kid, another young girl was in the was the daughter of the lead singer and it, mm -hmm. and it sucked it's exhausting oh totally totally it's I mean, exhausting it was yeah. cool like there's there's a feeling of playing on the stage alex it's kind of irreplaceable but right. uh, you know anyway to get back to your original question i would just say that i've always been really the artist who has gone into other things just by circumstances you know life takes you where it goes and all of a sudden you're playing music and and maybe as, as shallow as it sounds that I started playing music to meet girls when I was 14 or 13 or whatever I was, and then I became a professional and I was, you know, I got really good right. at it. Um, and yeah. So does the uh, music and the fine art that you're doing, do those kind of play off of one each other or? No, they're totally yeah. different. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, they don't play off of each other at all. Um, as, as, I, as I got older, I found, you know, when I, in my 20s, I kind of got into the whole Prince thing. Like, I wanted to do everything. And I was in this band called The Cinderkin for a long time. And there was a dynamic of writing with other people and, and songs mm -hmm. moving these amazing different directions that you would have never done on your own. And then, I, you know, I could play a lot of things. So I started writing all the music myself. And, you know, home recording became like a big thing. And so I'd just do it all myself. Well, after about six or seven years of that, I couldn't stand it anymore. I missed the dynamic of playing with other people, Alex. Right. You know, like right. miss like that was actually most of the fun of music is playing it with other guys and hanging out with your friends and shooting the shit and telling dirty jokes and calling each other, you know, whatever names you called each other. Uh, and that was really the, the most fun part of it for me. So the, the music became circumstantial. And so every once in a while, me and the old singer of that band, we still write songs to this date, even though he's got like six kids, I think, or seven kids or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's really, uh, he's, he's got a lot of kids now. So, um, Yeah. Okay, uh, so let's go through your fine artwork then. So yeah. you have um, a whole series of work. You have this body of work I've been mm -hmm. following on Instagram. Yeah. And it's under the title of delusionism. Right. So right. I understand what delude is, but can you define what delusionism is and what that means for your work? Yeah. I mean, well, if we just look at the word delude, first of all, okay? Right. Um, I've always really respected guys like, uh, like a Picasso, you know, mm -hmm. where they... They really spearhead a new genre, and they take something that that they want as their own and put their mark on it. and And I and I wanted something like that. I didn't want to just walk into something like where, yeah, I'm going to be an abstract expressionist, or you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna revive the Dada movement. Like I just didn't want to do that. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's just not me. So, and, and the word kind of came out. It was funny. It was me and my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's a really brilliant author, and she's 20. Mm-hmm. And the word sort of came out of a conversation that she and I were having and mm-hmm. just kind of the effect that I was having with my art. And one of the effects that I create is there's a little bit of a shock value to it. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny. I, sometimes I don't even intend that. Sometimes I want to do something beautiful, and all of a sudden it's it ends up being really gross and ugly. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> you know, sometimes an art the art takes a life of its own. But it really would draw people in. Like at my gallery in Nashville, um, you know, people will stand and you see them just kind of disappear from, you know, their life for a second, and they're and they're in the piece, and they're in the reality that I've created. Mm. And sometimes mm. the reality is just straight up fucked up. I mean, it is it is just something that just you know I have this piece that's on my wall in, in my in my loft, and uh, it's a piece you can see on my Instagram called my brother Cornelius, and it's this, it's like this 1500s portrait of mm-hmm. like this mutant man, you know, mm-hmm. like and he's mm-hmm. kind of like this guy who he's kind of like the the retarded son of like a king and he's probably and he's he roams around the dark corners of the castle everybody knows he's there and he's a nice guy you know but Mm -hmm. nobody nobody wants to talk to him so you kind of go into this alternate reality and and you know it's and it's just getting back to the definition of of a delusion you know it's something that's like falsely believed and i want people to not be in their world when they're looking at my art like i want them to sort of reject that world and get into where i'm at and you know there's a lot of humor involved like i really feel like yeah. i really feel that things have gotten so fucking serious in the world where you know part of my art is like humor you know i want mm-hmm. to like uh, the newest pieces of my delusionism series are are to me just they make me laugh and and I, that's how i come up with the ideas is once i laugh at it i go okay that's going on a canvas you know there's a piece i just finished yeah. it's called uh, it's called the joy of being Sadie. You can look at it, and it's the latest post I have on Instagram, and yeah. it's literally me creating this beautiful piece, and then I deface it. How you used to deface like People magazine. Me and my twin brother used to deface People magazines as a kid and just make each other laugh our asses off. And that's what it is. I just take this beautiful piece and then I deface it to make it look, you know, ridiculous. Right. Do you feel like this is kind of throwing in the face of like modern art? I'm going to say kind of in quotes, like with modern art where there's like no emotional content to it at all. It's bland. It's very static. Yeah. Do you find that like, like a little bit or that that's not the intent? You know, my intent is whatever my intent is, you know, Alex, yeah. I, just, I just want yeah. to create an effect and I want people to laugh sometimes. And sometimes I want them to feel uncomfortable. Um, I have a piece that's, Weirdly, I don't know why, but it's one of my most talked about pieces in my gallery when we do these art crawls in Nashville and people like gather around this one and, and it's um and it's a it's a it's a uh, pastel, an oil pastel of a husband, a wife and their cat. Mm-hmm. Right? And, it's, mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of goofy things about it, but everybody who looks at it is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And they just you can tell they're just it's almost grotesque and they're just they don't know what to think of it. And I love the I love the reaction. But see, that's part of why I like this delusionism moniker for my art style. And this, that's why I call the, the whole series is called delusionism, right? You can see it on the website. And, and that's mm-hmm. why I like that because, you know, you're, you're buying into what the definition of a delusion is. It's like a falsely believed or propagated something or an idea. And so they're, they've bought into the idea and they're in there and they're talking about it with their friends and it becomes the conversation piece that art was meant to be. If, if art right. becomes a fucking living room piece – 
that matches your couch and your rug, you know, you're buying art at Kohl's or, you know, in a mall. And I think that is total horseshit art. Like art needs to impinge and it needs to say something and it needs to, you know, tell you to fuck off or, you know, it needs mm-hmm. to be beautiful. Like it really needs to impinge. So yeah. Uh, anyway, so that you get the idea of the word. It's it's yeah. you know there's a lot of definitions of word delusion that I can walk into that totally communicate what I'm doing. No, I get it. So yeah. that actually brings up an interesting point. Like, what's the responsibility and the role of the artist? Then, you know, like what is their what is their responsibility level um, when it comes to creating art? It's not the art. Thomas, I actually brought this up in another interview. It was mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Kincaid work? You know, the painting yeah. with light. It looks great, but like you know, it's done well. But it's it's not really art, is it? At that point, hey, or you some know, form of like a lower form of art in a way, like it's poster art. You know, yeah. I mean, that right? question could have a million answers, right? You know, like what's what's the yeah. responsibility of an artist? I mean, there's going to be um, well, if you go back into the if you go back into the 1500s, even with the Italian Renaissance, I mean, these guys these guys were doing religious paintings for hundreds mm-hmm. of years. That was the art, and why did they mm-hmm. do it? Because that's who paid the bills. That's who could afford mm-hmm. to buy art. So you were doing big religious pieces. And, you know, Titian and all these other big artists back then that were really spearheading the Italian Renaissance, you know, that's they were out there to make a buck. I'm not saying that they were shallow on money, but, you know, these guys got to eat too. And you went after who's yeah. paying the bills. So you can go from that angle to who's paying the bills to, you know, some people just want to be interesting and weird, and that's fine. You know, if they want to mm-hmm. do that, I don't care. But... Uh, if I was to put out my opinion about what, what the role of an artist is, I would say it's to change things, you know, to move things into the future and to create the effects that you want to create moving into the future. Because, you know, uh, there's, there's a guy I follow on Instagram that I, I, mm-hmm. I'm a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, and Billy Corgan put out uh, this thing about uh, Electro Deco. And it's it's an Art Deco photography page, and I love uh-huh. Deco stuff. I think there's nothing more American than Deco. That's very true. Yeah. Yep. So so this guy, and I've even got my condo. It's funny. It's like a loft in downtown Nashville, but I've you know I do like hints of Deco around this place, and, and I'm a big fan. So that to me was their prediction of the future and what the future was going to look like, and and then everything went down this whole pathway, and then went into the hippie pathway, into the '70s pathway, and then. You know, but mm-hmm. the funny thing is, is I really think that they're right. I think that in, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years of time, we'll, you know, the, the flying cars that were supposed to hit by now will hit. And all these buildings, I think they're going to go into this whole deco thing again. And it's going to be like this futurism mixed with deco. So hmm. in a way, that whole genre of artists and architects back then uh, have predicted the future. And I think it's going to go there. And one of the things that I like to look at is what does it look like in video games? And I said, I right. play like my Oculus and there's, there's hilarious games in my Oculus where you're in the future and you know what it is. It's exactly what I said. It's art deco in the future. So they're mixing futuristic things with art deco. Now, will it go that way? Who knows? But if it does, right. it proves my point that the artist's senior responsibility is to, to cause a change and move people into the future. And, and, uh, you know, that's why I really respect, uh, all these designers, you know, some, some of these designers get laughed off of the runway with ridiculous styles, but then. Four years from now, everybody's wearing the shit that everybody was laughing at. You know, <laughs> and these guys had the balls to go out and say, you know, fuck the conventions, and this is what you guys are going to look like in five years. You're going to laugh at me now, and then right. I'll, be, I'll be a billionaire because you'll all be wearing my clothes in five years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds very hopeful, though. 
you know, it's a hopefulness of putting the future there that yeah. like, you know, we're going to be there tomorrow and we're going to, it's going to be better and it's going to be in better shape and, you know, it's going to be more culturally sound and more responsible. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, the artist itself has that vision for the future, mm -hmm. right. And creating an effect in the future. Yeah. 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 But I mean, every artist will answer that question is different as the artist is. I'm assuming, you know, I think there's, there's, yeah. there's an artist yeah. that I like in New York and uh, he's, he's a black guy who goes by the name of Akhenaten, like an old Egyptian name. And every one of his paintings, I love the guy's art because every one of his paintings is women giving birth and squirting milk out of their breasts, right? <laughs> and it's just so entertaining to me. And and he's he's just, a, I think he's a really brilliant artist. Uh, he just, and he makes me, makes me laugh with what he does and he's pushing boundaries of what he does and it's a style all of his own. Now, what is he trying to communicate? Who knows? You know, yeah. who knows what he's trying to communicate? I enjoy looking at his stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and and he could he could give you a completely different answer to to the question, you know? Yeah, right, right. Um, I want to talk about some more about your work here. Yeah. So uh, your work itself um, feels pretty raw, feels yeah. pretty unfiltered. Mm -hmm. Reminds me, and I'm not saying you're exactly like this, but because uh, you have your own work, but it does mm -hmm. remind me a lot of Francis Bacon, mm, yeah, the English painter. Yeah, and um, there's. Um, you have a classical composition to what you do, mm -hmm. but then there's like this rawness to it um, that it's it's almost unsettling, mm -hmm. right? Um, did you find this by accident, or is this really like like what you started evolving? And you kind of touched on this a little bit with the joy of being Sadie as a piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because I didn't really learn about Francis Bacon until I was in my 30s. Believe it or not. Uh -huh. Um, but it's, you, you run into these other artists who Francis Bacon does some wild stuff. It's almost like a Hellraiser yeah. movie, you know, when you a look at bit. some of his stuff, yeah. but he's brilliant. I think he's amazing. And actually I, I was a Damien Hirst fan. And so I've, mm. and, and I really enjoyed Damien Hirst, especially from a business capacity. That's how I learned about Damien Hirst was just how he did business. I was like, wow, this guy's really sharp in business. And then he was a huge Francis Bacon fan. So that's how I got turned on to Bacon. Oh, how cool. Yeah. So you know, my art style just sort of developed how it did, Alex. And, you know, of course, I had some influences along the way. Some were comic books, some were fine art. Mm -hmm. But I always had done sort of just, I don't know, weird shit, morbid stuff sometimes. Or as you put it, raw. Like, it was just, it ended up how it ended up. My art teacher mm -hmm. in eighth grade, um, her name was Betsy Edwards. She was somehow my teacher all the way through grade school, middle school, and high school. She kept moving to all my schools. And she's really a, a great teacher. And she mm. would, I remember one time I painted this picture of myself. It was a, I actually have this, I think, on my Instagram because I dug it out of my closet. It was a portrait. It was a self-portrait of me without skin. <laughs> right? <laughs> it was like, I think I was like 16 years old. And then the paint had some sort of weird mold on it. And mm -hmm. so then it had like this, like this glow. And it was a total mistake. And she goes, wow, that's really, she's like, that's really morbid and i was like yeah you know it's kind of cool huh and she goes yeah she's like you're really talented she's like you're morbid but you're talented and <laughs> and so she was such a cool teacher because she always just let me do what i wanted but all the work that i've ever done was sort of like that alex i just it, the painting or the drawing would just end up with something and sometimes i'll get a, an idea that just uh uh it goes down and and i'll have the initial idea of what it's gonna be and then it ends up somewhere else and you're like hey that's art you know, the, sometimes the piece takes on a life of its own and you just let it go there. And if you try and control that, I feel like you fail and you get into things like writer's block. You know, you just let the piece oh, go. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. You start creating too many confinements on mm -hmm. like how you're producing something. And then it has to be this one way and you can't let it go. 
you know, just to produce. Yeah. Make something. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So do you work primarily um, like in mixed media or you do oils, acrylics, a combination of a lot of that? Yeah, I, I probably do a lot of combinations. I, I usually work yeah. in fast drying stuff. Like I do a lot of acrylic because it dries fast and I work. Uh, I do. It's, it's sort of weird. Um, I like acrylic because it dries fast. Sometimes it uh-huh. pisses me off because the colors change as it dries. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not like yeah. it's not as consistent as an oil. But I, I do like the fact that it dries quickly so I can work in, in, in a lot of different layers on things and really build out a depth. There's, there's a, in the ancient, actually the ancient, you know, it just, let's just go with the old masters, you know, going to like mm-hmm. Caravaggio eras and stuff like that. These guys were doing uh, layering and I forget what they called it. Um, I'll come up with the, I'll come up with the name of what they called it. But I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, it's like how the Mona Lisa was painted. They would just layer things out. Mm-hmm. And it just creates these glows, and sometimes mm-hmm. you just you, you you may not see all the under the the layers that are under there, but it creates a depth and a reality to it. And uh, I, I I can do that with acrylics, and then it'll dry quickly. So then I can do like a lot of layers really quickly. So I enjoy that. And then sometimes I'll be you know there'll be colored pencil in there, and sometimes there's oil pastels, and sometimes there's colored chalk. Whatever the hell goes on the painting to achieve mm-hmm. the effect that I want to do goes on the painting. But I would say 90% of my time just for the speed of drying right. with acrylic. But I've been considering, especially with some of these new delusionism pieces, uh, just going straight oil. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and I'll have to work on several pieces at once so that I can you know, jump from one piece to the next. And I'll probably end up working on like four or five pieces at once just to right. allow the drying time and keep my my pace of work. Right. You work really fast then, I mm-hmm, assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that, yeah. is that the allure with the acrylics? Then it's like, you have this idea and you want to keep going, going, going on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and you know how art is Alex. I mean, sometimes yeah. you'll, there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's a constant challenge. You're constantly learning. Every painting is a new lesson and yeah. you know, even something as simple to work with is acrylic, which I feel is fairly simple to work with. You're, it even challenges you and you're learning new things about it. And, you know, you might get a new brush that changes how you paint completely. And every, you know, your, your, the way that you paint is evolving every single time. So it, it's a, um, it's a, it's just a process. So the, the mediums that I use are whatever works for that time period. And sometimes I'll mess around with something and I'll, and I'll go, this fucking sucks and I hate it. And then, and then <laughs> right. somebody will look at it and be like, that's amazing. I'll be like, really? <laughs> I'm like that's amazing. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Like, hey, buy yeah. it then. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's do do you do like a painting in one sitting uh, with the acrylics or never? You... No. Never. No. no, it's never no. done in a sitting. It's just there's too many layers for what I do in in a sitting. Like, you know, I might be able to get a piece done if I'm really cranking in days or maybe right. a week, but I'll usually have three or four pieces going at any given time. Uh-huh. So I'll have like right now, um, I've got, well, I just finished one, but I've got three pieces going right now. I've got two delusionism series pieces and then one, you know, my other series right now that I'm working on is called the attraction series. And it's more of a, an abstract, uh, more of a, just an abstract painting series that I do very wet on wet, a lot of, a lot of drip art. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I, I'm working on three pieces at once. It was four, like I said, just one got done. That way, you know, there is some drying that's involved in some of these, especially when you're working wet on wet. So I'll, I'll move mm-hmm. from I'll move from that and let it dry for, you know, 20 minutes, put a fan on it, and then I'll move to the other two and start working on some highlights of it or whatever. Right, right. 
Um, so we have oil, acrylics, and mixed media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you start out with like sketches, or do you sometimes. just you do sometimes? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, the the uh, like that one piece I was telling you about earlier, my brother Cornelius. That actually yeah. was a um, you know. There's two ways that I work. This this question gets into the two ways that I work. Uh -huh. Is one is I just stay. I just like to work fast because for me, if I'm thinking about shit, I feel like it gets all screwed up and you get frustrated. And to me, I'll just move very quickly. And the faster I move, it seems like the more right everything goes. And mm. then I don't get into writer's block. And then I'm producing a lot of pieces. And then I'm 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 not frustrated. And and so speed just handles a lot for me. And even if I fuck something up, mm -hmm. like if I'm working on um, you know, like for me, like a, a, a thing that I always work with is skin tones mm -hmm. and, and trying to always find like perfect skin tones. Well, that's a frustrating thing with acrylics because the fucking colors change as they try. So you're like, God damn it. You know, I just wanted this one fucking skin tone and it changed on me. So, yeah. but you know, let's say that I screw up a face and the skin tones and it didn't come out is, uh, like one, this, this last girl, she was very white in the picture that I had. And, and I couldn't, and she kept turning out like spray tanned and it was frustrating. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just keep moving in action and keep building out layers on that anyway, so that mm -hmm. the frustration sort of goes by the wayside. And sometimes you'll end up with a completely new face and it's great. And sometimes it sucks and then I'll just keep going. Um, so there's that action, I guess you just call it like an action painting thing. You know, I don't want to say like, like a Jackson Pollock action painting, right? Thing, but right. it's just like action painting. You're just moving so that it develops and and those are some of the most fun for me because they end up in sometimes areas that you just weren't moving towards and and you're like wow that's you know it turned out really cool and so that's one angle the other time the other thing that happens alex is i'll get like a spontaneous idea and you'll get them you'll get them in the funniest spots like the shower and and sitting on the toilet in the morning you know you'd be like <laughs> right. sitting on the toilet yeah you know and you're like oh wow and then i'll have my iphone there of course because I'm like everybody else. And then I'll put it in my iPhone notes and be like, boom, and I'll, I'll write down the idea so that I don't forget it. Sometimes it'll be like right before, you know, there's that, that state right when you're falling asleep and you'll get an idea. Right. And you're like, shit. And you pull out your iPhone and you, you know, you write, you write down the little note. Sometimes I'll be cooking. Or you just get weird ideas at some points. And then, and that's how a lot of these, these uh, pieces start. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you give. It sounds like you give yourself a lot of slack, though, too, to be like you're letting the piece kind of take shape. Oh yeah, right. Like, bet, yeah, for sure. It, I, I've I've met a lot of artists over the years. I've worked with a lot of people. I've done a lot of my own work, mm -hmm. you know. And um, sometimes that's a very hard thing to do is, is not to play the role of editor while you're being the artist. Yeah, you know. And how do you how do you compartmentalize that in your mind mm -hmm. or in the work you're doing? Like, how do you do that? You know, you know, I think every, I think every artist comes up with something different, man. But I mean, playing yeah. music for me is where I really learned how to move the creative process forward because it can be a fucking nightmare if you let it. Mm -hmm. And and like I said, I've just kind of gave you what I do. I just keep moving and mm -hmm. stay in action. And and sometimes you got to know when to stop. Like uh, like last night, I was getting frustrated with a piece I was working on a little bit, and but it was like midnight. And so I was like, mm -hmm. you know, it's time to just hang up the brushes, throw them in the water, and let them soak. And and go to bed, you know, turn on my radio show or whatever I fall asleep to and, and, and I'm out. Uh, you Sometimes you just got to know when to stop and pick it up fresh, right? Like just mm. I'm done with this now and, you, you know, like don't work through the – but there's different things. So 
there's a great story that I was told that is something that I had experienced myself writing music with uh, guys like I told you earlier. Mm-hmm. And that can be a very frustrating process too. You can run into writer's block and all these things. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, it was about Tom York from Radiohead. And I went to a music seminar from a guy named um, David Campbell, who is Beck's dad. Mm-hmm. And he's a super famous um, arranger and composer. This guy's won like a million Grammys. He's worked with everybody in the business from Ricky Martin to Rush. I mean, just ultra famous, ultra <laughs> talented. And so we're, I'm listening to him tell a story about working with Tom York on the Rainbow in Rainbow's album from Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And so they had an orchestra there. There's literally an orchestra. Like, and it wasn't a huge one, but it was uh, enough that they were going to do the, the music, record the music on site for the background there. And so, so Tom York walks out there. It doesn't tell anybody he's walking out there. The orchestra's practicing one of the songs. So Tom goes out there mm-hmm. and he just starts throwing his body around, sort of like Elaine from that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, the band about. dancing. So he yeah. just kind of goes out there. He closes his eyes and apparently he's like sitting there like kicking his body around and just like dancing around. Mm-hmm. And so Campbell says to his other producer, he says, uh, what – what is he doing? <laughs> What's he doing? And he goes, that's just what Tom does. He just goes out there and he just gets into the moment. He just says, fuck everything and fuck convention and just fuck what everybody thinks of what I'm doing. And he just kind of gets into the moment, right? He just gets mm-hmm. into that mindset. Mm-hmm. And the best way that I can, um, it sounds cheesy because whenever I say this, people think of like these AutoZone commercials, but it's Tom getting into the zone, yeah, right. Right. And so that's yeah. that's kind of what I've learned as an artist over over, you know, all of my years as an artist in different genres is just, you know, like I just you got to get yourself into the zone and and to me getting into the zone is an action-based thing. And you can mm-hmm. decide to be in the zone and and a lot of people like who are like, "Well, I got to be in the right mood." Well, what gets you in the right fucking mood? You know, like a good TV show mm-hmm. or what, the weather? Who fucking knows? I don't know. Yeah, right. But right. that to me is too effect pointy and you know, you're on the receiving end of something that's going to, what, it's going to make you in the mood. So I, I like to be as causative as I can and as creative right. as I can to get myself into the mood because otherwise you don't produce pieces. And how are you going to be a success as an, uh, as an artist if you're not producing a volume of pieces? The fact of the matter is you're not. You right. Know, Guns N' Roses on their User Illusion album had like 100 songs to choose from. Mm-hmm. you know for a great mm-hmm. album and you know picasso i forgot it picasso produced like forty-two thousand pieces warhol produced fifty thousand pieces i think i think hearst is up to forty-one thousand pieces i mean mm-hmm. you know you want to be a success at that level these guys were producing huge numbers and yeah, right. you have to get into you know as you were bringing up earlier in the call like business you know you got to get into the business of art and you got to get into producing volume and these things like writer's block if you don't figure these out um you know, you're going to end up like this one artist I know who I love the guy. I think he's a super talented artist, but he can only push out one piece a month at his best. Mm-hmm. One piece a month. And I'm like, well, what are you selling your pieces for? He's like, ah, like four or five G's a piece. I was like, okay, so your best year, you're going to be making 50 or 60 grand a year. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's probably fine, but you know, you pump out a couple of kids and get married. And if you're living in a cool neighborhood in New York or Chicago or something like that, yep. I mean, it, that ain't a lot of money, dude. No, it's not a lot of money. So you got to really start thinking along these other lines. Well, that brings up my next thing I wanted to talk to you about was the business side of this. Then, mm-hmm. so um, yeah. selling your work, yeah. right? So you're not you want to promote, you want to sell your work. So now you've you've created the work, you've edited, you put this body of work together. Mm-hmm. Um. So how do you? 
like how are you getting this out to your audience? And actually, I'm going to take one step back. Sure. Because when you talk about creating a piece, do you think about whether or not it can sell before you make it? Or you're like, man, I'm going to make it, and then I'm going to figure out how to sell no. it after. Yeah. yeah. It's two different roles, two different hats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, the biggest thing I have to start with with my art is it has to be true to me. Right. And, which is kind of, you know, some people are like, well, you got to paint for others. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. I guess you do. But right. You know, if it doesn't ring true to me as an artist, I'm like, what the fuck am I even doing? Like, if I'm not happy painting it, then you're you're a slave to other people on your own. Uh, and I just like, but to me, it sort of defeats the purpose. You know, did did the Beatles write jingles <laughs> for people? You know, to make everybody happy that they're writing a nice jingle that everybody likes. No, they were they were true artists that were writing stuff that you know changed uh-huh. music forever. Um, uh-huh. And so that's that hat. And I'll start off with art. I don't even think about selling it. I don't even think about things like like the joy of being Sadie. I was sitting there defacing this one photo that I saw on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I and I took out my Apple pen and I just started like erasing her eyeballs and making them glowy-eyed <laughs> and drawing buck teeth and giving her a unibrow and a zit and a hairy mole. And all of a sudden, right. I'm, laugh- I'm, so, all of a sudden I'm laughing at it. And I'm uh-huh. like, boom, there's my next painting. Right? I love it. So That's a really... And then later, later, I know it just, it's fucking, it's funny as shit to me. Um, so then, so then later I have to sit there and figure out like, okay, uh, well, who's, who's the audience for this. And then you have to figure out who's your public, you know, certainly not the Bob Ross crowd. Yeah. Right. You know, or the like landscape people. I've got, I've, I've got to really go into, you know, there's so many genres of art. I think I was on one website where there was a hundred and, 15 categorized genres of art on this one website. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then you start going in like, who are my public? Not everybody's my public. My family's probably not my public. Most of my friends are probably not my public. And, you know, a public, of course, being a specific section of people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you got to go look for your public and start putting it out there. And, and the weird thing is, you know, like with, uh, like there's one piece of my attraction series, you know, like there's uh, one guy I'm talking to, who, you know, there's a, it's a, bec- a banker guy, a private equity guy, mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and it makes sense, you know, you're like art collectors, who are the art collectors? Who do they get into? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. people that are going to like my delusionism series are probably funny enough going to be people, people who like a Francis Bacon or a George right. Condo, maybe even uh, right. like a John Curran or uh, Lisa Uscavage or, you know, people that are into these artists that are doing uh, more, I don't even want to say avant-garde. It's kind of just like they're doing their own fucking thing and how it comes out. They're like, yeah, this is what I do. And people are like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I think it's like the the impressionists in France. I mean, I don't think those guys walked around going, I'm doing impressionism. That's they're right. like, no, nah, I want to make really good work. And it just so happens they were all friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they fed off each other in yeah. a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. yeah, which I think is really cool. Yeah. I think there needs to be more of that going on the the internet age although i really appreciate the speed of communication i'm, I'm believe me I've, i use all you know i'm sitting down right now like an idiot with an iphone an ipad and a mac all right next to each other so right. you know believe me i've bought into this um but i do miss the it's sort of like what i said when i'm playing in a rock band alex you know the the best mm-hmm. part about playing in a rock band was hanging out with your your musician buddies and smoking cigarettes and and hanging out and playing these gigs together and creating sort of like best friendships, you mm-hmm. know? And so in the art world, there's a little less of that because you're an artist painting on your own and everybody's so focused on being an individual. And, and I just feel like, you know, having like an art commune would be amazing. 
like everybody everybody working in like a giant loft together and some of these are starting to crop up in nashville i think it'd be a real blast where you could you know hang out around a water cooler shoot the shit with a lot of guys like that yeah, and no, I, I could definitely see the allure of it. There's a lot of great music that come out of places like that, like the band Tool out oh, yeah. of LA. They yeah. were built out of like an artist loft and like working art center, basically, by a producer. No shit, I didn't. And know that, that band came out of yeah, yeah, they came out of that, and it was only totally by accident that they met each other. Wow, they came to be one of the biggest rock gods of our generation, right? Yeah. So yeah, but there's a little bit of that isolation that comes with being an artist, especially when you're doing fine art. Um, so. Do you feel like finding the community would be a good part of, you know, your health, sanity, working? <laughs> probably, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know what it would do for your creative process. One of the things that I ran into in music and I ran into in, in painting mm-hmm. is I I hate looking at other people's shit all the time. And I believe mm-hmm. me, I'm a fan of certain people, uh, certain mm-hmm. artists. And uh, the problem is, is if you, it's like when you're writing a song or you're painting and you're a big fan of somebody you sort of pick up a little bit of what they do. Mm. And I don't like that. I've tried to stay away from that. And because mm-hmm. I find that that's the most frustrating thing for me is if I'm constantly comparing my development as an artist to somebody else, I get frustrated. Um, mm-hmm. a, a great example is like a, a John Curran. So, you know, if you watch his evolution of painting over the last 30 years or so, like his early 90s stuff, it was brilliant. Um, and now if you look mm. at his modern stuff, he's gone kind of like a whole sex route uh, which is to me totally hilarious what he's doing. It's like, it's almost like watching like forties porn or something, but Jesus. when it comes, yeah, it's fucking hilarious. But when you, when you look at his, how good he is as a painter, Alex, I mean, this guy mm-hmm. is at peak level and mm-hmm. he's frustrating to look at. Cause you're like, wow, this guy is really a, a brilliant painter. Mm-hmm. And, um, some people get too focused on his content. I'm like, yeah, his content is hilarious. This guy's really communicating a scene. But like, let's look at the evolution of him as an artist and as a is a technician of painting. You're like, wow, this guy mm. is at peak performance. So if I sit there and watch a bunch of John Curran stuff all the time, which I do on Instagram all the time, mm-hmm. um, it can be a very frustrating thing for me when I'm sitting there struggling with a fucking skin tone on some white girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. I'm like, God damn it, yeah. I can't get this chick's white skin right. And uh, and then John will go out and bust out this amazing detailed thing where he's like. He's, you know, some of his, his fur textures and metal textures that he does. I'm like, holy cow, this guy is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. You know, you right. want to develop your own and music is the same way you do the same thing in music. So I feel that I, sometimes I'll have to shut all of my art appreciation hats off and I'll just fucking forget all of it and just say, mm-hmm. fuck it, you know, whatever, whatever my, my painting development is, 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 uh, is whatever it is, you know, what, what skills I have and develop or what skills I have and develop. And it doesn't mean that I don't read and study. And sometimes I'm on YouTube, like everybody else trying to find like an answer to my problem. And, mm-hmm. and there's, um, I forget, I don't know how to say this girl's last name, Juliet Aristides. Is that her name? You know I don't know. She's, uh, don't. she's really big in the art world in terms of uh, technique. And she teaches a lot of classical oil painting techniques. And I've got one of her books, maybe a couple of books actually down there on my coffee table that I read in the morning over coffee and, and just keep your chops up. You know, there's always things that you want to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess, I, I guess I'm saying it's a balancing act mm-hmm. between developing your own skill and your own style and your own niche. That is all you and your own brand. That's all you, mm-hmm. uh, but still keeping your, your skills going. It's, you never want to, be complacent with your skills 
No, I couldn't agree more, man. It's uh, I think there's always room to grow. There's always room to learn something new. Oh yeah. Right, and about yourself too. Mm -hmm. Like oh, I didn't know I could do that, or I I found something new for me mm -hmm. as an artist. That's yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. So uh, you had some shows last year. Yeah. Uh, we had some releases. Now, how the fine art world has changed a lot, mm -hmm. right? Or especially in the last like 15 years, quite a bit. Um, how do you find the right venue or do you find the owner of the venue and connect with that person and just be like, this is, this would be a good fit. Is it more of that relationship or is it the location for you? Well, for me, I'm a digital guy. Okay. So, right. um, I'm almost all digital and I, you know, I've got my own little gallery here in Nashville for people and we, it's cool. Cause we do like these big city art crawls. And so I get a lot of exposure that way. Um, mm -hmm. but like pieces that I'm selling usually are all off the internet now, Alex, like Instagram is, is like the biggest sales tool. Like that's, uh, that's where, uh, any piece that I'm usually selling is usually somebody responding to me from that. <laughs> so there's, that's, it's a great, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the opportunities that we all have today. I mean, if I, we, we would have had these 25 years ago in music and uh, in art back then, I'm like, wow, I mean, there's, there's anybody can open up an Instagram account and start collecting followers and, and you have an audience so long as you're smart about who you're picking as, as followers. Right. But, uh, so and then some of the shows, like uh, one of the shows that I did um, last year, I think they contacted me, which funny enough was probably through freaking Instagram. I think, everything okay. is I think everything's happening through Instagram. Um, <laughs> you know, my Facebook, I don't do too much on Facebook because I've sort of uh, siphoned that off as to being like a family and friends thing. And, yeah, right. uh, you know, sometimes right. I'll th throw some paintings on there, but I get like zero business from Facebook. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Instagram is, is pretty good. You know, the whole art world is sitting on there and, you know, you can connect up with his Werner gallery and all sorts of shit. Um, mm. Yeah. So it, so it's like curating your own uh, social media like Instagram or That's Behance right. or anything like that is going to be a very important. Yeah. It's going to take a priority. That's well, cool. the cool thing, too, is you don't have to yeah. think with commissions, you know, like uh, if, yeah. you're, if you're working with a gallery, I mean, a gallery is going to take upwards of 50% commission on a piece. Sure. So if let's say that you value a piece that you're doing at, you know, 8,000 bucks. Well, well, now you've just valued it at 4,000. <laughs> right. So, right. So right. you've either got to inflate what you feel because, you know, the price of art is the price of art. You know, you're, you're going to pay for the brand of somebody like a, a Hearst or a condo mm -hmm. or you're going to pay for what you feel your own value of the pieces that's how people are going to price it and mm -hmm. and so like yeah you're like you know he's like a, there's a, a buddy of mine named alex Devereaux. he's uh, connected to me on my instagram account this guy's uh he's one of those realism painters i should connect mm -hmm. you up with him he's he's a, he's a great guy and i've known him since nice. high school but he's an amazing uh, acrylic painter this guy does these he probably does more than acrylics but he does these really like old school life scenes of like old texaco gas stations and he's brilliant oh how cool yeah he's super super talented this guy and he gets featured in magazines and all this stuff and and i don't know what i don't know what he charges for a painting but i'm sure he puts a shitload of time into a painting and, and time is not mm -hmm. what you're selling in a painting mm -hmm. so what is his time worth i mean a ton i mean i don't know what, what he's selling it for there's a guy here um there's a guy here in Nashville who I also think is an interesting painter. He does all these, maybe it's a girl, I don't know, but it, they do like these Egyptian things. And uh, on his pricing cards, I think this is sort of a failure on his part as a salesperson or her part. I, again, I forget who it is, mm, but mm. Um, they put how many hours they spent on the piece on the card. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. And mm. I go, I go, are you selling time? 
Mm-hmm. Are you fucking selling time to these people? Do you think they really give a shit how much time you spent on this painting? Like nobody's ever asked me how long I spend on a painting when they're buying it. Right. You know, and it's, it's, it's sort of like to me too, like there's artists who do a similar thing with time and materials. They're like, yeah, I got this, you know, I got the, uh, I've got this linen that I sourced from uh, a, uh, a Turkish dead baby and the wood was built out of a uh, 6,000 year old Oak, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, are people buying your canvas in the wood that you stretched your canvas on? Is that really what they're buying? Like, I just think it's stupid. You know, they're not buying mm-hmm. that. You know, you paint on whatever the hell you want to paint on. So, <laughs> but that's, anyway, but that's, that's, that's the, uh, the whole thing with this, this time thing is that there's, the value is not in the time. The value to me is in the the effect. I know I've kind of deviated from your original question. Yeah, right, that's but, fine. But that's this where these, that's where these questions go. You know. Yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, no, I I love it. Yeah, you don't value the time. It's it's the actual communication and the work itself. Fuck that's yeah. the value, right? Like that's what's gonna have someone to be like, I love this piece. I want it in my home. I want to keep this forever. I'm gonna treasure this because mm-hmm. it says something to them. They'll pay whatever they want for that. Yeah, whatever they feel like to pay. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because uh, my my girlfriend she got me for Christmas this condo drawing, you know, and it's a it's just him doing some chalk, you know, it's nothing special. But condo pieces are expensive, dude. I mean, I was just looking at one on Artsy. It's the starting cost for it on the auction is one and a half million dollars. Well, that's a pretty small art market that's buying condo right now. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty upper upper crust market. So. And I do okay, Alex, but I'm not in the market. I'm not up to the level of uh, buying one and a half million dollar condo pieces yet. Uh, yeah, no, no, I get it. Yeah, although I want to be, but um, so she bought me this one piece for Christmas, and it's great. But what you know, what I really love about it, I love the piece itself, and it's part of his whole, um, it's, you know, because he is, he does a few different styles, but this is part of his little cubist, you know, his growth out of cubism, mm-hmm. and it's cool. But the coolest part about it for me is that he did it Mm. right that's what i really love about it is it is that george sat down and he drew it and he did his cubism thing and and i signed his name on there and and he goes here you go i think that's the Mm -hmm. coolest part is it's you you actually have a part of the artist there in your house they actually touched it and Mm -hmm. you know like a you know you know a buddy of mine has a, a picasso right and it's funny, it's not one of his famous Picassos, of course, and I, I don't know how much it's worth, but still, fucking Picasso yeah. had a brush in his hand and painted that. Yeah. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Like, you, you actually have a piece of history on paper in your house, and that, mm-hmm. is, is, that is a super valuable thing to me. So I, I feel like when people are buying art, this is something that they should be looking at. They've got a piece of that artist with them in their house, and it changes the dynamic of the environment and whatever piece you put into your house you're you know it stops becoming just a living room right mm-hmm. but like i've got my condo here i mm-hmm. kept all the walls you know i've got these dark brown kind of polished loft floors and, and uh it's all white walls you know it's a, and it's a loft it looks grungy mm-hmm. <laughs> so but i kept all the walls white and i didn't do stupid things like accent colors that you used to do in the 90s because i don't want fucking anybody paying attention to that I want them to look at the art that's on the wall and get the flavor that that's going to bring to the environment. I love it. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so poetic, man. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I mean, that's, it really does. I mean, uh, having really original, original artwork in your home that the artist worked on mm-hmm. is, is you have a piece of that and you have a yeah. piece of their mind out there and it's c- continually communicating to you their intention and what they wanted to say. Oh yeah. And uh, it, there's another, there's definitely no lore to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, well, with that being said, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Sounds great. And we're back with Daniel Matthew York on the art of uh, Dan. I have uh, very five. <laughs> I have five very very important and poignant questions to ask you. Okay, well, <laughs> so I'm, are I'm, you ready? I'm six feet tall, heterosexual male. I mean, what, if we're gonna go down that route? <laughs> oh no, not at currently all. probably all right. 220 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got your stats. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, good. So, uh, question number one. Since you're from Chicago, yeah. I have to ask this one because this is like kind of a little bit of a contention on this one, yeah. depending on how you answer. Right. Uh, best place to get Italian beef in Chicago. Ooh. Mm. Okay. Um, probably it's going to have to be Rosati's. And Rosati's mm. is a smaller chain local there. I think they've branched out into other states now. But, but Rosati's has uh, two sandwiches. They have one that's called the Chief. Mm -hmm. right they do it of course they do an italian beef and anybody who doesn't know what an italian beef is just go google image it but then mm -hmm. they have one that's called the chief and the chief is the shit it's an italian beef on a garlic bread uh, on garlic bread and then they then they melt cheese all over it and stick it in there afterwards it's it's uh it's amazing and i would say number two and three number two is probably portillo's italian beefs number three is really? probably giordano's yeah good portillo's really yeah. hmm. although portillo's if you want a good sandwich for portillo's they do the cheesy beefs there, uh -huh. but they fucked them up over the last few years. So you have to ask for them. They do like shredded cheese on them now, which is retarded. Uh, I'm like, yeah. What, no, what no, are no. you guys doing? You guys got yeah, no. let's get back to the croissant. They used to do them on croissants with liquid cheese. So you can still get it that way if you ask for it. And those are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It actually sounds pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, were you actually side question on this? Yeah. Total sidebar. Were you a fan of the Chicago style pizza? Yeah, of course. Of course. I still, you know, I love, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I like it being a Chicago guy any more than I like like a New York, New York style of pizza. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's its own, it's its own beast. And I do, I do love it. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's always the fight of, oh, is Lou Mel now he's better than Giordano's and all right, right, you know, but right. to me, I sit there and I go, you know, I'll throw Rosati's deep dishes up there against those any day of the week. Nice. Yeah, so Rosati's and Giordano's will take the cake on, I think, a deep dish from Chicago any day. I, I couldn't get into it. When I lived out there, I grew up in New York and Long Island uh, doing New York-style pizza, you know, and the thin crusts and, you know, $1.65 at Penn Station. You put garlic powder on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally like cardboard. But then, so I, I went, when I went to Chicago, I had my first deep dish. Um, What'd you have on I it, was, though? Uh, it was just the cheese. Yeah, that's the so way to do it. That's stuff. the way to yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah took like 45 minutes it came out and i and i didn't know i didn't know this and i looked at the waitress and i was like it's upside down because <laughs> <laughs> it's cheese then sauce right and i'm like i'm like this isn't right yeah right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a funny thing you eat two pieces of that yeah. you feel like you gain a million pounds but at least you order oh, it right man. man people people throw so much shit on that and the way to order those is just cheese like you don't screw it up right. with anything else all right okay well th thank you for answering that one okay good <laughs> yeah right uh okay good so since uh you and i are both uh teenagers in the 90s because mm -hmm. we're on the same age what would be your favorite 90s song Ooh. 
So many. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I've gone into a 90s music kick recently and, mm-hmm. um, and kind of gone back and listening to stuff to see what held up. Because some of the, 90, the early 90s and mid-90s, there was some really great stuff. I sort of checked out in the late 90s because everything started to get too over-compressed for me and too canned. And mm-hmm. just, too, I don't know, I just didn't really like it. So I sort of checked out then. But the, the 90s really came out with some great stuff. But best song. Hmm. Well, favorite. favorite. Favorite song. It doesn't have to be best song. Yeah, it could be your favorite song. Well, it's probably pretty niche for me. I would say, you know, remember Mike Patton from Faith No More. I was a big Faith No More mm-hmm. fan. So I would have to say in his side band called Mr. Bungle, there was a, there was a song called Slowly Growing Deaf. <laughs> and Slowly Growing Deaf for me was, is uh, an amazing song. Uh, that nice. there's a, actually another song in there called Dead Goon, which is crazy good. And those guys are super mm-hmm. talented. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I don't know. There's songs that I loved, like Jane's Addiction, Three Days by Jane's Addiction was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved uh, I loved Weezer, uh, you know, like a good Weezer song, good Nirvana song. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What was that one? What was that one Nirvana song? Um where the lyrics are one baby to another set. I'm lucky I've met you. What one is that? Drain? Drain you, that. maybe? I forget the name of it. That's a great song. Yeah, it is. It is Drain, it drain you. you. Yeah. One baby to another. Yeah, that was it. Mm-hmm. That was a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah great yeah. tune, man. Like, just, that, that would be like quintessential 90s anthems right there. Yeah, you know, my favorite song off that In Utero album was actually that song, Lithium. That was one of my favorite songs. Wait, Lithium was off I, of, Lithium wasn't on In Utero. Lithium was on. Not In Utero, it was on Nevermind. It was on Nevermind, yeah. Never mind. I was one of my favorite songs of theirs. Yeah, great I love tune. that one. Great tune. Yeah. In utero, yeah. though, remember uh, in utero. I remember in the '90s not really liking that album much, and then I went back and listened to it in present time. It's killer in present mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. It's a good album. Yeah, like yeah, Francis. Very, very there's good. a one song in there called "Francis Farmer Will Have Her Revenge." I think it's called. Super cool. Super cool tune. Super cool chord changes. I really, you know, you. Being older and having grown up in the 90s, I really appreciate Kurt Cobain more now than I think I did then. There's a reason that guy was one of the biggest stars out of the 90s. It's mm, very interesting. Mm-hmm. That is very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So anyway, okay. so I don't really have a good answer for you, Alex. Who knows? I mean, there's so many freaking songs. I, I love everything Glenn Danzig did. <laughs> everything. So, you know, who knows? I mean, I could probably name 20 songs. Can I tell you an embarrassing Glenn Danzig story? Of course you can. All right, cool. So I was at a comic convention. It was a San Diego Comic-Con in 2005. Yeah. And uh, they have Artist Alley. Artist Alley is where all these artists buy a booth mm-hmm. and they promote their wares, their work. There's con- like you know committee groups there. People do reenactments. People do comic book covers. Sure. But Glenn Danzig was there. And this is the 90s? No, this is 2005. Oh, okay. This I is gotcha. 2005, gotcha. yeah. So um, we were walking through Artist Alley and we found this one booth that did like reenactments. Uh, and these guys were doing like in parks, like battling against each other and full night outfits and stuff like that. And we were laughing our asses off. We thought it was so ridiculous. <laughs> Me and my friends. And then my friend looks over and Glenn Danzig had a booth right next to him. And my friend pointed out and he goes, hey, that's Glenn Danzig. And as loud as I could possibly say, what? wow, he's really short. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, I heard, I've heard that. I've never seen him in person, but I've heard he's, I've heard he's really short. Did he, did he hear you? Yes, and I got the, I got the, I got the death glare oh, from Glenn Danzig, man. and I was like, I screwed up. I missed my chance. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. It's, All right. Yeah, cool. Funny. That's funny, dude. Mm. All right. Next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite favorite curse word. Fuck. Obviously, I've said it. I've said it a hundred <laughs> times in your radio show. You know, there's there's nothing more perfect than that one. 
Uh, I think you probably have about 500 definitions for that word. Too. Easy. So, Easy. Yeah. Yep. You can say in different ways. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, next question. Are you happy that the man bun lost its luster? Um, yeah. I mean, trends mm -hmm. come and go. That one, that one was kind of a funny one. Um, maybe I should mm -hmm. grow a man bun now that uh, it's lost its luster. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an, such an odd trend. So. Yeah, it's that whole Viking thing. I don't know what people were, you know, everybody wants to be a Viking. So usually the guys that I see having the man buns around Nashville was either hipsters or uh, like these bodybuilder guys. Oh, yeah. You know, they were all trying yeah, to be yeah, Jason yeah. Momo or something. Oh, do you think it's you think it's Viking though? I didn't I didn't I get it. I kind of got like the whole Viking vibe out of it when I see these dudes. You know, it'd be like a bunch of a bunch of muscle heads, and they had their man buns, and and I'm like, okay, well, whatever. You know, if that's the if that's the fashion thing that's going on right now, I, I loved the whole. There was a bunch of memes going around a couple of years ago. You probably remember on like on social media of people seeing these guys with these super clean cut haircuts, and then this whole beard trend being mm -hmm. viewed. How dudes in the '80s with mullets were. And I was like, yeah, that's, I think that's just going to be, it's exactly how it's going to be viewed. People are going to be like, that's what you guys wore in 2018. Ah. <laughs> I like the old man. Yeah. With that. <laughs> totally. I'll be like, no, it's not what I wore. I've had the same haircut since I was 17. So, you know, and I think beards are gross. So I never bought into it either way. So, uh, yeah. Oh, no kidding. You think beards are gross? All right. Yeah, I'm never, you know, I like a little scruff sometimes, but I'm usually a clean shaver or a little bit of scruff more out of laziness of shaving than, than anything. But I'll never really grow a beard. I think they're, I think they're kind of nasty. Yeah. No, I, I did one for quite a while. Yeah, I remember. I actually just came, I remember. Yeah, it just came off like three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, no, it did. It did. I liked it. It was cool. It can get stylish. I could feel like an old sea captain. So <laughs> yeah, I, there's a, there's a dude I see hanging around the arts district in Nashville and he's got the whole, he's got the whole pointed beard. It's like a gigantic Fu Manchu thing. And then uh, he does, wow. he's got huge handlebars, like these huge handlebar mustache things going. And, uh, he's, you know, he's got his own little look going. I, I almost don't know what he's trying to pull off, but it's definitely, he's on the tail end of that whole hipster fashion thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, it's cool, man. It's his look, yeah, but I totally. just, for me, I'm, for me, I go like, well, it just seems like too much effort. It's just like it's a lot of work in the morning to get like get ready for your gig and get going with your day because it's like you got to get that. If you if you miss one day on it, people are like, wow, you're really letting yourself go, man. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you know, this week, Alex, I think I wore the same pair of sweatpants three days in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Coronavirus. Oh my god, there's a funny meme I saw about that. It was. Um, it was what I thought my apocalyptic outfit would be. Oh. It was a picture of Mad Max. Yeah, totally. And what it really is, and it's just like me in sweatpants. <laughs> no, it's totally, <laughs> totally. It's totally like that because I'm like, well, I'm not going to go out. Like, you know, and then when it's yeah. funny because I do go out in my neighborhood in Nashville, but I live downtown. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so downtown, there's, you know, there's some residentials down here, but it's usually like party central. So it's empty. It's me and the homeless mm -hmm. people. And so I'm like, wow. I'm not dressing up for these people. <laughs> We're just, you know, you can't go. There's no restaurants open. So you just, you know, I'll go out and maybe have a cigar or have a walk over a cigar or something like that. It's funny. Yeah, right, right. Okay, uh, last question for you, man. Uh, what makes you laugh the most? Mm, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I, I um, you know, I'm kind of of the Dave Chappelle school of thought. You know, I, I just, you know, I'm, I was a 90s kid. And so the... Mm -hmm like this whole thing where everything's gotten so politically correct 
I think it's horseshit. You know, all it to, all it is to me is, you know, I you know I'm all for having different beliefs. That's what's so great about America is that you can come here and think what you want, and that's a, a beautiful part about this country. But when you start shutting people up, then you've got a problem. Like, you know, like this uh, Colin Kaepernick, or I don't even know how to say his last name, but you know, this guy who caused all this ruckus by kneeling down and everybody freaked out and. You know, made a lot of enemies, and I say good for him. And I'm not even saying I'm a, I agree with him or not, Alex. I just like the idea that he lives in a country where he can do that, right? Mm-hmm. And I like mm-hmm. I like that I live in a country where, uh, you know, somebody can support Donald Trump, and everybody thinks they're, you know, everybody's like, you support Donald Trump. Like I like that. I like that you can mm-hmm. say whatever you want. So, um, if um, what was I got to round this back to your question because I tend to do that. Mm-hmm. Give me your question again it's what makes you laugh yeah, the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so so this whole politically correct thing it it rubs me the wrong way so i think it's really hilarious uh to watch shows mm-hmm. like family guy mm-hmm. okay family guy i swear to god they press every single button that you're not supposed to press and mm-hmm. i think they're geniuses i think the best job in the world is probably writing for that show a bunch of guys sitting around a table writing jokes for that show would be just a riot and i mm-hmm. think i've seen every single episode on every single season four times through and I fall asleep to it almost every night. And so family guy makes me laugh. (laughs) And the reason why is they just, you know, they just take these things that people are so sensitive about and they Mm -hmm. joke about it. Mm -hmm. Just like Dave Chappelle does. These people, you know, they just don't take things so freaking seriously and it's not all touchy all the time. And, you know, I think that, Mm -hmm. I think this touchiness comes in trends, but uh, so I guess in fart jokes, so that and fart jokes. <laughs> so pushing some buttons and fart jokes. Yeah, that's right. I okay, mean, good. How, how do you not laugh at a fart, Alex? Let's get real. Yeah, you, you, you almost have to. Like, look, my, my son my son is 10 years old. So he's coming, he's in an age of between, you know, being right before middle school and getting into middle school. Right. And that's pretty much the sense of humor. Yeah. So he'll say something like he'd be like a fart joke thing, and you're just like, it's it's fantastic. It's such good material, <laughs> <I know. laughs> you know. And it always makes you laugh. Like how, it's just amazing. Like the fart will make you laugh all the time, yeah. no matter what. Well, you'll see like a good comedy, and 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 it's all brilliant. But there's one episode of Family Guy that starts off, and I th- I forget what episode it is. Like maybe the 200th episode. Anyway, but they mm-hmm. they call it their Emmy winning episode because they want to win an Emmy. That's the whole premise, and so. Mm-hmm. So Peter comes into the living room and he says, all right, guys, so we're going to win an Emmy. And they have this whole conversation about winning an Emmy. And then he goes, all right, so everybody get all your farts and burps out now. So everybody starts farting, burping, and puking for like 15 seconds. And I'm like, (laughs) now that's brilliant comedy right there. That's just genius. Mm -hmm. I love it. That's great. The fart fart joke and inappropriate humor. Mm -hmm, All right, man. So we're going to wrap this up. I appreciate your candid answers on this too. This is fantastic. Yeah, anytime. Um, so you have Instagram, so we can find your Instagram at Daniel Matthew York. Yep, Daniel That's Matthew right. York and Matthew is two T's. So Daniel Matthew York. And then you can also go to my website, which is uh, DanielMatthewYork.com. All right, great. And you have any shows coming up or uh, anything we, we can look forward to in the near future here? No, not a, not in the immediate future. No shows other than I have uh, I'm downtown. Like if you come to the Nashville Art Crawls, you can come see my stuff uh, live at the Art Crawls. Otherwise, I'm completely virtual. I love it, man. Yeah. Well, hey, Dan, uh, thank you so much for your time today. You're a great guest. Absolutely hilarious. I had a blast talking with you. Yeah, likewise, man. All right. Take care. Peace.